There are a few folks here that I do not know, so I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, my name's Dave Silvernell. I'm the pastor, and I also want to invite you to our fellowship lunch immediately following the service, and i love for a chance to, to meet you and get to know you. That would be great. Uh, welcome home, Lieutenant Pugh. So glad you're here. For those that don't know, Andy recently graduated from Officer Candidate School and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Army. And so we are delighted there's many answered prayers there, as I'm sure you are as well. <laughs> uh, we have a shared experience that way, so, um, although mine was a few years ago. Um, anyways, we are in Jeremiah 42 and 43 today. So we're starting to get towards the home stretch now of the book of Jeremiah. And uh, I'm going to read it as we go through it. It's long as two chapters, uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be constantly reminded that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We are constantly surrounded with opportunities to make bad choices. So we need to be reminded that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that the book of Jeremiah builds our faith and points us to Christ. Because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. So we pray, speak through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you watch war movies, but I have seen a lot of them. And invariably, at some point in the movie, at some point in the battle being depicted, there comes a moment of decision. And usually the decisions work out, and the good guys win. After all, they're just movies. But there's always one moment when the leader has to decide what to do. And you just sit there waiting. What's he going to do? And the suspense is killing you. And then he makes a decision. And it doesn't work out. And someone dies. And it's a fatal mistake. It happens in virtually every war movie. One of the most famous war movies ever made is the World War II movie, Saving Private Ryan, starring Tom Hanks. Saving Private Ryan won a ton of awards, primarily because it depicted the various battles and small unit actions of the Normandy invasion in a viscerally realistic way. Unlike action-adventure movies, which I also like, um, but in many of those movies, the violence seems to be minimized. People get shot and they put a Band-Aid on it. That's totally unrealistic. In Saving Private Ryan, the violence was actually violent and bloody and gory and horrifying. And that's realistic. But just like in a real battle, there are several decision points in the movie where it appears the right decision was made and someone died anyway. There's a scene where one of the soldiers disobeys a direct order not to get involved with a civilian family, and he decides to rescue a young child, a good thing, but in so doing gets shot by an enemy sniper. It was a fatal mistake. 
There's another scene where the unit stumbles across an enemy machine gun nest, and they have to choose between bypassing the position and continuing the mission, leaving the enemy position uh, behind to possibly attack other troops who are following after them, or to attack the position knowing it will disrupt their own mission. And the decision is made to assault the enemy position, which is the textbook decision. And one of their guys, the medic, gets killed. It was a fatal mistake. And then there's a scene where the psalm-quoting sniper has to make a split-second decision to stay in the bell tower where he's been an effective shooter or flee when he sees one of the enemy's armored vehicles approaching. Now, the best sniper is no match for a tank. But he stays to take out a few more of the enemy infantry, but is killed by the tank round that destroys the bell tower. It was a fatal mistake. There's probably five more of those scenes in that movie alone, but you get the point. You can make the right choice for the right reason, and it can still turn out wrong. And sometimes you make the wrong choice, perhaps because of a promise you've made, but you still have to pay the consequences of that wrong choice. Either way, your choice, right or wrong, can prove to be a fatal mistake. That's exactly what happens to Jeremiah in our passage today. We're in Jeremiah chapters 42 and 43, and we've come to a moment of decision. There are two choices put before the people, and Jeremiah's fate lies in the balance. So let's turn to our passage. It's I said we're coming into the home stretch of the book of Jeremiah. And we see there's two choices presented. Now, this is the longest, is the first section, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 18. And actually, we're going to spend the most time there. So don't panic if we get along. We haven't gotten to the next points. The other two points are shorter. We'll start there at verse 1, chapter 42. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few, as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us, whether it is good or bad. We will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with them, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your uh, plea for mercy before him. Verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. 
I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. Verse 13. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration, hate coupled with disgust, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. So Jeremiah's people start making their fatal mistake before they even realize what they're doing. They're, these are refugees They've survived the fall of Jerusalem. They've witnessed the atrocities of war. They watched their family and friends fall in battle, die of starvation, or march into exile. They've been held hostage by a crazed terrorist. And these hardships have reduced God's people to a remnant of their former selves. And chapter 41 ends with this ragged company of traumatized refugees heading south towards Egypt. The end of Jeremiah 41 says, and they went and stayed near Bethlehem intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. But then somewhere near Bethlehem, before they head out uh, for Egypt, they pause. Shouldn't we pray about this? Shouldn't we get God's confirmation on our plans? Now, even though later on we're going to read, they're pretty determined to follow their own plan, you know, they say we should stop and seek guidance from God. Now, God's been absent from the story since chapter 38. And Jeremiah was last seen silent among the settlers in chapter 40. And now they're back in action. And yet it's neither God or Jeremiah who took the initiative to reopen communication, so to speak. It's requested by the whole community, starting at verse 1. And all the people... From the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us. They start off politely, recognizing Jeremiah as the true prophet of the Lord your God. And they plead with him to take up his prophetic role of praying for them and seeking God's guidance. The fact that Jeremiah agrees to do so shows that this earlier prohibition against praying for the people has been lifted. That ban had been in place when the judgment on Jerusalem was still in the future, though all but inevitable. 
But now Jerusalem has fallen. And people have been killed and scattered and sent into exile. And this is a remnant of survivors. And they can be prayed for. And their lament comes, end of verse 2, for all this remnant. Because we're left with but a few as your eyes see us. It's a pathetic reversal of the promise to Abraham. It is deeply ironic that they're planning to go back to Egypt, the land where the few had grown to the many. And this is one of many hints of an exodus reversal in these chapters. First of all, the Jews had good reason to be afraid there are certain to be reprisals when the Babylonians learn that the governor they had appointed had been assassinated and is actually leading this remnant now, Johanan. So before the Babylonians could retaliate, they decide to go back to Egypt, back to the house of bondage, back to the house of slavery. They want to return to the place of their exodus under Moses. It's almost as if they're trying to undo their salvation Going back to Egypt had fatal mistake written all over it. Jeremiah has already warned them several times not to go back to Egypt. Nevertheless, they're halfway out the door. And they must have thought, I don't know, but, you know, maybe just this once, it'd be okay to go back to Egypt. So they get about five miles down the road, and they start having second thoughts. Should we stay or should we go? I know. Let's ask God. What a novel idea. Now, asking God for directions is always the right thing to do. What does God want me to do with uh, my life? What does God want me to study? What kind of work does God want me to do? Where should I live? Should I get married? Who should I get married to? All important questions. The trouble is, too many people don't start asking their questions uh, those questions until they're halfway to Egypt. Which means they only pretend to want to know God's will for their lives. What they really want is for God to rubber stamp the plans they've already made. They say, I've already made up my mind, but by the way, Lord, this is what you want me to do, right? And they start to act before they ever begin to pray. If Jeremiah ever wanted to say, I told you so, now is his chance. You know, he could have just said, look, I'm old, I'm tired. I can empathize with that. I'm ending my prophetic ministry, you're on your own. Instead, he accepts their seemingly sincere desire to know the way they should go. And once again, he embraces an unworthy people with a promise. In essence, he promises to pray and then tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And there's an immense steadiness to the prophet, always committed to the full counsel of God's word, no matter what his circumstances, no matter who's asking. Whether he doubts their sincerity or not, he keeps about his prophetic mission with this long obedience in the same direction. Jeremiah agrees to intercede for them, and the people respond with their willingness to do whatever God says. Indeed, their words constitute an oath promising unconditional obedience to God. Verse 5, then they said to Jeremiah, 
May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Literally, there's a repeated promise to obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, we've been here before many, many times. Most prominently under Moses in Exodus 24, and then under Joshua in Joshua 24, they made these same exact promises and then broken them. Neither of which gives us much confidence that this promise, for all its sincerity, will be kept any more than the others were. Still, the request has been lodged and the promise has been made. So we wait. Will it work out? Or is it just another fatal mistake? And so they wait in suspense for 10 days. You think about it, these are refugees terrified that at any moment Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers are going to appear on the horizon in order to take revenge on them for the murder of his appointed governor. This wait would have been agonizing. All they want to do is hit the road and head south as quick as possible. But Jeremiah knew better than to speak too soon. So 10 days later, the answer came. And it occupies the rest of chapter 42. By the end of Jeremiah's speech, it seems that a response has already been made, which is then built into his words. The people's intentions are anticipated and built into the word of God through the word of Jeremiah. And God's response to the people is quite clear. Using a classic sort of if-then structure, he sets out two choices with two opposing outcomes. And the first choice, verse 10, is to remain in this land. It's presented as a choice if you stay in this land, but it's also God's command. It's his straight answer to their request that God should, back in verse 3, show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. And the commands reinforced with a rich battery of promises. The words Jeremiah heard at his commissioning as a prophet all the way back in chapter 1 are now deployed for the benefit of these fearful fugitives. God himself would build them and plant them. And in verses 11 and 18, he addresses their very understandable fear with a personal promise of salvation and deliverance. As Nebuchadnezzar has been the agent of God's anger, God says he can become the agent of God's compassion, verse 12. After all, God still calls him my servant. So that's the first choice, to remain. But there's a second choice, verse 13, to not remain in the land. And if that's the choice they're determined to make, then Jeremiah spells out the consequences. Now, you have to understand, the people have good reason for wanting to go to Egypt. Their lives have been shattered and shredded for two long years through the horror of an invasion, the hunger of a long siege, the exile of large numbers of their relatives, displacement as refugees in their own land, violent civil war among uh, rival leaders, continuing threat from the Babylonians. I mean, it kind of makes sense to get out of town. They long for a place of plenty and peace and stability and free from war and hunger. 
And Egypt seems to offer that, even if it means leaving their home. It's very tempting. It's also very deceiving. And Jeremiah counters this choice in three ways. First, in verse 13, he says, straight disobedience to the Lord. Before we get into any of the practical stuff, you can obey God or disobey God. That's the first choice. And it's not as if they didn't already have a lot of experience with the consequences of disobedience. I mean, we've got 41 chapters of not listening to God and the consequences. Second, in verse 16, he says, Egypt's going to disappoint all your hopes, as it always had. You will find no safe haven there. And then third, in verse 18, he says, you will cut yourself off. They are going to cut themselves off from the covenantal blessing of God and the future he still planned for his people. And if they insist on this reversal of the exodus, they're going to suffer a reversal of the Abrahamic promise as well. Instead of the promise given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 to be a blessing, they become, verse 18, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. And in case they hope for like a short stay until things settle down, Jeremiah cuts off all hope of ever returning to the promised land. The last line of verse 18 cancels the future by reversing their past. You shall see this place no more. Egypt will be a place of no return. So the choices are clear. Stay in the land and trust the promises of God. That way you can participate in the future that God's planning, the building and the planning. Now that would take tremendous courage and faith in the face of very real fears. And that's what God called them to. Or go to Egypt for the illusion of safety and defy the word of God. And that way they would cut themselves off from the purposes of God, cut themselves off from God's covenant blessings and leave the stage. God's story with God's people would continue, but they would not be a part of it. For them, the story would end where it had begun as refugees in Egypt, but this time there would be no exodus. And as Jeremiah delivers his last words spoken in Judah, he ends not with an appeal, but with a weary resignation that these people have already chosen. You have not listened to the voice of the Lord your God. They asked to hear it. They promised to obey it. And now they reject it. And it would prove to be a fatal mistake. And so we see the right choice rejected. Starting at verse 19 through the beginning of chapter 43. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah... Do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now, therefore, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, 
by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. Chapter 43. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hands of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. Liar. I mean, the viciousness of the response is breathtaking. The previous politeness is gone. It's vanished. There is no hint of, well, thank you for your honest answer to our question. But after due consideration, we uh, regret to inform you that we're taking a different view. Please feel free to leave us now with apologies for any inconvenience that we have caused. Oh, no. The first word they hurl at Jeremiah is lies. Exactly the word that Jeremiah had used about the false prophets. And they're throwing it back at him, essentially accusing him of being a false prophet. Strangely, having insisted that Jeremiah should pray to the Lord your God, chapter 42, verse 2, they now insist that the Lord our God hadn't sent him at all, chapter 43, verse 2. You notice the change? First, it's the Lord your God. Pray to your God. Our God wouldn't tell you to do that. Have you ever something happened in the world and somebody would tell you, well, my God would never do that? And I always sort of love to play with that a little bit. It's kind of mean. I should just apologize to the whole planet. Because I'm always like, oh, you're the one that gets to define God now. Your God operates by your rules. Who said that happened? Last I checked, God gets to define himself and operates by his own rules, whether you like them or not. The people respected Jeremiah enough to ask for his prayers, but they don't trust God enough to follow his counsel. And having asked for the truth, they call it a lie. Having heard God's voice, they refuse to listen. Having sought God's will, they follow their own. It is a fatal mistake. And so the story comes to an end with the wrong choice accepted. The end of chapter 43, the wrong choice accepted. Picking up at verse 5. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt. 
for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they arrived at Tapanes. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah at Tapanes and said, Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the ob obelisks of Helopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. Well, joy to the world. I mean, doubtless, they thought the get to Egypt were safe at last from the long arm of Babylon. Perhaps they're finally free from the unwelcome preaching of Jeremiah. And in both cases, they're wrong. The irony continues. We see in this decision an outrageous act of defiance that nullifies the great exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Israel has gone full swing and going back to the place of bondage the people of God have dealt a death blow to the story of their own salvation. The place of Israel's rebirth in Egypt becomes the place of their death. And Jeremiah's last acted out prophecy, he's done a number of these in the book, where he acts something out and basically says, learn from this. And the last one is recorded here starting in verse 9. He gets some large stones and he embeds them in the courtyard in one of Pharaoh's palaces and they're going to remain there as a tangible reminder of the words that he has spoken and as a sign that's going to vindicate him as a true prophet when this prophecy is fulfilled, which actually gets fulfilled in 567 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar shows up. The same Nebuchadnezzar from who they thought they had escaped turns up in Egypt and puts his throne on top of Pharaoh's. And all the religious symbols of Egypt's imperial power are humiliated. Verse 12, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. Going back to Egypt is a sad ending to a sad story. But for us, it's a cautionary tale about willful disobedience to the revealed will of God. The remnant of the Jews knew God's will for their life, but they rejected it because they thought they knew better. You know, there's a biblical proverb that describes this. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And they have made a fatal mistake. There's only one detail easy to miss in this long tragedy that gives any hope at all. Because the Bible lists some of the men and women, all those hard names, who have traveled down to Egypt. And among them, verse 6, is Jeremiah the prophet. 
That's a remarkable statement of loyalty to God's people. Jeremiah didn't have to go back to Egypt. In fact, just months before, the Babylonians had offered him an all-expense-paid trip to Babylon without any of the hardships. They said, you can go and exile to Babylon, but we won't make you suffer. The great prophet is no Benedict Arnold. He's so devoted to God's people, he rejects the reward of an easier life that he so richly deserves, and he chooses to join the remnant of God's people walking to Egypt than to walk on the plush carpets of Babylon. He stayed with God's people even when they're acting like fools. They're not pilgrims. They're not captives. They're essentially deserters. And to live with such cowards may have been the most courageous thing that Jeremiah ever did. It's proof of his love for God and his love for God's people. And Jeremiah spent the rest of his life there in vain seeking to turn the people back to the God whom they'd rejected. He never left them. And as far as we know, there he died, loyal to God's people to the very end. Jeremiah's loyalty is a wonderful example for everyone who belongs to the church. There are always people in the church who are hard to love. Don't look around. There are always people who are hard to love. Maybe there's someone in your Bible study who just irritates you. Perhaps someone in Sunday school has a way of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. I mean, other than me. It's possible that someone in this church has just flat out mistreated you. But if you claim to know Christ, you must love the unlovely. This is because Christ gave his very life for tax collectors and prostitutes and all kinds of sinners, you and me included. There's something to be said for being loyal to God's people, not because they're perfect, but because they're sinners saved by grace. Now, hopefully, this loyalty of Jeremiah reminds you of another who left a place of glory for a place of humiliation who so identified with his people that he stayed with them even when they made the wrong choices, when they went to the wrong places, and when they said the wrong things, who loved them when they turned their backs on him, who came into the midst of traumatized ragamuffin refugees who couldn't find their way home and said, I am the way home. He came to a people who couldn't bear their own sin, and so he took their sin upon himself. Romans 5 tells us for why we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came down from heaven and went into a far country and died for weak, ungodly sinners for us that we might live for him. And Jesus confronts each of us with a choice. My life for yours. My will for yours. My righteousness for your unrighteousness. We're about to come to his table. Don't make a fatal mistake. Choose wisely. You should probably pray first. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
our Lord and our God. Thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are a mixed bag of bad choices. We would do what we think is right rather than trust you to do what you say is right. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, to believe that it always comes from your hand and that obeying it is always the right choice. Forgive us when we don't do that. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being such self-righteous jerks who insist on our own way, our own opinions, our own plans, and work in each of us this summer. As we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears, teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises, and through those things draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.